0: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Four Quartets is T.S. Eliot's last great poem, which he began in the years leading up to the Second World War and completed while London was still being bombed, and he was a fire warden watching at night for burning buildings. He was writing for a wide audience in Britain and America, and across four poems from Burnt Norton to East Coker, The Dry Salvages to Little Gidding, he explored the relationship between life, death, and time, and in particular, the threats to his adopted England. Some twenty years later, after his earlier great work, The Waste Land, Eliot here sought the universal truths of human experience, and did that in a way that was intensely spiritual, even mystical, and also personal as well as public. With me to discuss four quartets are David Moody, Emeritus Professor of English and American Literature at the University of York, Fran Breerton, Professor of Modern Poetry at Queen's University, Belfast, and Mark Ford, Professor of English and American Literature at University College, London. Fran Breaton, let's look at T.S. Eliot's reputation as a poet by the 1930s. Can you just... Give us a few peaks of what is written by the mid-thirties.
1: I can, yes, and it's notable, really, how extraordinarily prominent Eliot is by the 1930s, and how rapidly that's been achieved. So, from coming over to England at the start of the First World War, the really important first book in terms of modern poetry is *Prufrock* and other observations, which came out in 1917, and in which, in the *Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock*, although it's post for a pre-First World War poem, he's seen to capture something of that wartime and post-war sensibility. He follows that, of course, in 1922 with The Wasteland, arguably the great long poem of the 20th century, and then we come through Ash Wednesday in 1930, um, Murder in the Cathedral, the play he writes in 1935, and by 1935 he's then published a Collected poems from 1909 to 1935 that actually includes the first of the four quartets, Burnt Norton, and he has an extraordinary reputation as a poet at that point, both in Britain and America and across Europe and is really seen as the elder statesman of English poetry by that time. Quite young to be
0: an elder statesman. <coughs> slightly, slightly reinforced by his position at the Great Poetry House, Faber and Faber, where he was regarded as, what was it, the Pope of Russell Square, where the offices were situated or other... other titles were given to him which were sort of rueful as well as complimentary yes in the end they it too much it, power people thought well
1: they did um, in the end people called it the age of Eliot so along with the growth of a poetic reputation you also have the growth of Eliot's reputation as a critic, as an editor, and as you say, as a poetry publisher, all of which renders him, or is perceived to render him, extraordinarily powerful in the world of letters. So, if we go back to 1919, the essay tradition in the individual talent, a text that is still being talked about in literary criticism today, you know, he gave the Clark lectures before he was 40, I think, in 1926, and he takes on editorship of the Criterion in 1922, and of course, joins Faber in 1925. So, he's actually centrally involved in promoting poetry and part of what he's doing there is also I think determining the climate of taste in which his own works will be read. Um, Aud- Auden once said about the poet as critic that really this could come down to read me, don't read the other fellow and there's a way of reading Eliot's criticism which is a way of understanding Eliot.
0: Is it possible for you, it might not be so a movement if it isn't is it possible to encapsulate for people who might not know T.S. Eliot well to encapsulate how distinctive and in what way his voice was distinctive?
1: Yeats called him in 1936 the most revolutionary man in poetry to have appeared in my lifetime. Now that's not from Yeats necessarily a compliment um, but he attributes that revolutionary sensibility to style and to subject matter, so that Eliot perceived to capture that post-war sensibility. We no longer believe necessarily in progress. There is disillusionment and um, And Eliot, in the multiplicity of voices in that poem, in drawing from popular culture, music hall, as well as from trawling European literature, throwing in foreign quotation, that is a completely new style of writing. It's new in rhythmical and formal terms too, moving in and out of shifting patterns. Of rhythms and and employing free verse in the way he does, and he captures very well, i think in the wartime and post war years that sense of of people almost. Being automated victims of circumstance in a way as if they no longer have individual control over their act- actions. So, Eliot in the 20s sounds rather different, I think, from the Eliot who appears in 1930 with Ash Wednesday and develops through to the four quartets. But before
0: you move on, it is, Im- it is important to know how The Wasteland, for instance, captured the imagination of so many young people, young writers, uh, readers all over the place, didn't it? It appears yeah. in other people's novels and so on and so forth.
1: Yes, yeah, so, you know, when The Wasteland comes out in 1922 by the time you get to the beginning of what we call a 30s generation and people like Auden and Spender are coming along The Wasteland is the poem they're most profoundly influenced by and also the poem they need to try and overcome in a sense to forge a new and distinctive voice in the 1930s
0: David Moody it appears that we might be able to say that Eliot no longer considered himself to be principally a poet in the 1930s he'd taken to writing plays and some of them being successful um, how did he start so how did he why did he veer back, as it were, to the four, to four quartets?
2: Yes, an interesting question. Just a remark about what Fran has just said so illuminatingly. Eliot did say about the Wasteland and its popularity that it had given people the illusion of being disillusioned. He wasn't altogether impressed by the reception of it. And this, was, this had to do with his own ambitions as a poet. Up to Marina, and before writing The Rock, he had been writing poetry essentially for himself. It was personal poetry, out of his own needs and drives. He was commissioned to write The Rock early in the 1930s and then to write Murder in the Cathedral for the Canterbury Festival in 1935. And that moved him towards a theatre. He was able to deploy his sense of different voices in poetry and he thought he would go on writing for the theatre... But there was material left over from murder in the cathedral, a few speeches, particularly the one that begins, or the passage that begins, "Burnt Norton," about time, and that he saw as possible, possible germ of a poem, and that's how he came to write "Burnt Norton." And "Burnt Norton," he Can thought, in mind, th-
0: this is what those lines were:
2: "Time, present and time past." are both perhaps present in time-future, and time-future contained in time-past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been is an abstraction, remaining a perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. And that's a theme which he takes up through what he develops... And unfolds. It's a philosophical theme, basically. So that's where his
0: thinking is going. But, but that almost sounds like the end of something, doesn't it, David? He's got the murder in the cathedral, he's got this leftover, let's use a cost term, I mean, more, more to write about being an eminent poet. Uh, uh, and, but he puts it in his collected poems. This is the last one, and this is almost like the full stop. But it, it germinates the other three, doesn't it? It does in time, terms. yes. yes. Um, he... As
2: I say, he w- thought he would go on writing for the theatre and the reason for that was he wanted to address a different audience and a larger audience. The poetry was addressed, as I say, it was coming out of himself personally, but it was a- addressed to poetry readers and he wanted a larger audience of those who didn't necessarily read poetry and who went to the theatre partly for entertainment. He recognised in the theatre by the time he was writing after the commissioned uh, murder in the theatre, he recognised the theatre as a place of entertainment almost for comedy but he wanted to use that to bring in more serious concerns and to move the mind from the ordinary level up to a different level of spiritual perception and when it came to the wartime and at the beginning of the war as he said we were thrown in on ourselves and that's when he began to write East Koker which was a poem he'd had in mind for some time he said and out of his Kirker, developed the rise of Ages, and eventually Little giving.
0: So it, it's very... Organ- it's, it's, when we look at what he writes, it's nearly always been germinating for a long time, hasn't it? Uh, he's, he's got this... I suppose this is not uncommon, but still he, he very... Much- very clearly admits this has been, or we know that for many, many years he's been thinking about and he wouldn't let it go, even though he thought, he announced the end of his political career, but there was this other thing to do. Now to you Mark Uh, how, let's just for a moment talk about Eliot's personal life Um, I'm not being prurient here, but it does matter, especially that first, well his breakdown which but, but that's in the past of our discussion now for the in the wasteland, uh, and then the marriage to Vivian, which proved to be very unhappy, and she uh, as she, as we know, was institutionalized at a certain stage, and so on. How was this playing into his thinking and writing at this stage and when uh, say, the late thirties when he's moving up to the next three quartets?
3: Yes. Elliot eventually left Vivian in uh, 1932. He went to America um, and he gave the Charles Eliot Norton lectures at Harvard and he took that opportunity to leave a letter for Vivian saying, and I'm not coming back. And, and this was unbelievably distressing for Vivian. Um, she tried to put a letter in the Times asking him to come back. She showed up um, at an event he was giving in 1935 wearing black, black shirt, kind of fascist uniform and said, will you come back to me, Tom? And he sort of hurried off the stage, um, and the, the kind She ran
0: around the offices in paper.
3: Yes, she would go but around he the He had opposites. a
0: special door to get out of. The yes,
3: the, the secretary would telephone up, and he would disappear through a special door. So, Elliot felt very, very guilty about this. It's terribly sad, isn't it? Very it is sad. I mean, I, yeah. she was a difficult woman to live with. I don't think uh, that that can be denied, but the actual events of the 30s, her experiences in the 30s were quite terrible and Elliot had also taken up with a woman called Emily Hale whom he'd met in Boston back in 1912 and in the trip to America in 1932 he went all the way over to California to visit Emily Hale and it was Emily Hale whom he was he visited Burnt Norton with in September of 1934 so this kind of visual, this il- revelation that he has in the garden at Burnt Norton was one shared with Emily Hale, who was American. And by this
0: time, he'd become an uh, Anglo-Catholic. He was a church warden at his local church, attended there every Sunday, took the collection.
3: Um,
0: and he was a British citizen by then? Yes,
3: in yes, 1927, well, he yeah. received into the English Church and also took British citizenship. And I, another, I think, important uh, thing was 1933, he took a vow of chastity, uh, and the extent to which... The erotic is sublimated in four quartets, I think relates to this, this notion that that desire uh, is somehow needs Not to be sublimated. Not in itself desirable. Yes,
0: <laughs> correct. Yes. Right. He, he came from Missouri in the United States, but he was very determined to be a British citizen and became a British citizen. And, and the England that he saw was one that he embraced very tightly and held to and wrote out of. What was that England?
3: It, it was the England of an expatriate, of, of, of somebody who was who was arriving in England and attempting to make sense of England. I mean, Virginia Woolf famously mocked him for wearing a four-piece suit uh, that, that he was trying to be more English than the English. But Eliot himself had kind of, though he became a British citizen in 1927. Later in life, he said, "I'm I'm probably more an American poet uh, than yeah, an English poet." But let's stick to where we are. your is right. The, and Four Quartets does have a. a a journey to America made by his ancestor it refers to that in East Coca and Dry Salvages. is set in America. So the but poem this is, is
0: informed by Anglo-Catholicism. This thing it's informed by an idea of Englishness, particularly as, as as the the last three quartets are around and about the beginning of and in the middle the Second World War, where England as he saw it, well, everybody saw it, was attacked and London as he saw it. And he literally saw it because he was a he was a fire warden on top of a roof, uh, was being burnt. So we're talking about that now. Yes. We? Yeah.
3: Uh, he identified uh, with the English in the battle against um, uh, Nazi Germany very strongly. History is now in England. And East Coker was tremendously seen as a patriotic poem. It sold 12,000 copies quite quite quickly, which is pretty good going for a poetry pamphlet. So Eliot was being seen as a, as a national treasure in some ways. And uh, his Englishness was seen as part of the, of not only part of the war effort, but he was a connection to America and might help get America into the war. But it's,
0: uh, what I'm trying to get to, and probably, like, let's just do it quickly and get it over with. It's a very particular sort of Englishness, and people could call it a sliver of Englishness. There's a great dissenting tradition, there's the Methodist tradition, there's Ju- Judaism here, there's all sorts of, and there's the growth of atheism and so on. He takes a sliver, the Anglo-Catholic, mm-hmm. a very important sliver and so on and so forth, and he's also a royalist, so it's out of this that he's writing, and out of this that he forms his Englishness. Yes, right. and, and
3: he, he loved the, aristoc- the aristocracy, the upper classes and he, he used to hang out with them and he was very proud of his connections to to, to, to the aristocracy.
1: Fran, Fran Brayton. Yes, I was just going to say that idea of Englishness in Eliot, it, it's really... Um, pick the strand that you like, um, the Anglo-Catholicism, because it has the validity going back and that idea of what is valid, which comes back in four quartets, associated with his concern with the martyrdom of Charles I. It is very much that royalist and quite conservative view of English history, which appealed at a particular moment in time. It might not more generally appeal to a number of readers. Can I just, before I move to David, can I just ask you to... Can you encapsulate what
0: the overreaching themes are in four quartets, if they can be described as such?
1: Well, themes could work in two ways in four quartets. If we take its... Um musical motif and the musical structure it has it has themes in the way music has themes recurring themes we might call those fire the rose water things that are stitched all the way through the poem in the kind of exposition recapitulation development sort of idea of musical structure its main themes in terms of I suppose its preoccupations what is it about Um, I, I would say first of all time and its relation to what is timeless and within that you can encompass how history relates to religion, how the individual relates to the past and the future Um, The
0: intersection between time and timelessness Yes, Yes. and and
1: the point of that intersection, he then says, is the incarnation, so vertical axis and horizontal axis and that meeting point between them. And, And where do you find timeless moments through time that actually bring you to that revelation? The second theme that I would say is throughout the poem is to do with words and language and the struggle with words the struggle with words that is designed to take you to the word with a capital W but the struggle with language as a poet as well his own battle and and it's a poem that reflects a great deal on the process of composition that it's quite laboured in some ways in thinking about that and in thinking about how language can or can't reflect the world around us.
0: And also several instances of him saying or almost saying what I want to say is beyond words uh, it cannot be said what I want to say cannot be said and that is the true meaning, I think Either it's what cannot be said. Yeah,
1: no. D- David said many years ago well, um, that David, you know, there's no, a paradox sort of the poem that reaches towards silence, that struggles to reach towards silence beyond language.
0: David, would you like, David, would you? Yes. Um,
2: one thing about his Englishness and the, the Englishness in the war particularly, in addition to what has been said already, um, it's a very peculiar um, engagement with the war because Very little of the war actually gets into it, apart from the dead patrol of the fire watch walking the streets after the firebombing. Apart from that, the war is hardly recognised. And one of the key things, there's a mention of battle when he invokes in Dry Salvages, Arjuna, what Krishna says to Arjuna on the field of battle. But Krishna doesn't say anything about the war, about battling. What he says is, upon whatever sphere... A being, the mind of a man may be intent at the moment of death, and the moment of death is every moment. It's a matter of the consciousness that matters, not the actual participation in the war. And there's an extraordinary detachment, I think, in the poem, in those three later quartets, which, as you say, are patriotic poems. They are patriotic, but not the ordinary sense of patriotism. His patria is not of this world. He says it's England and nowhere. And the nowhere is very important. So that detachment is an essential part of the Englishness. Detachment from what England is at the same time as he is in England. And that's the chosen place. You asked me...
0: You asked me... Well, I'm so interested in your answer, I forgot what I asked you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Could could I just add, in terms of the overall themes, the extent to which the poem is a spiritual autobiography that it's it's Eliot's attempt to present his um, spiritual state. And you can connect that to his co- concept from Dante of an early period of the Inferno. Fran was talking about the early poetry being... Um, uh, uh, which, was, which was so popular, uh, attacking secular society. Then the middle period, the Purgatorio bit, the wasteland in which he sets his own lands in order. And you can look at four quartets as fulfilling this Dantescan three-part structure of the spiritual autobiography. And this is where he gets his glimpse of paradise. Coming, coming yes. back to the unsayable. The, the
0: That's right. <laughs> I was going to say, could you tell me about the unsayable? Yes. No. 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 Not obvious why I forgot it, yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, the the unsayable is precisely what it's about. And he was trained as a philosopher, a sceptical philosopher. And he's concerned with the criticism of experience, experience in the criticism of experience, and his criticism of experience leads him towards a sense that the absolute, the ultimate of experience is something beyond what can be said particularly when he reaches towards the divine. He cannot, as a poet, talk about God. That is to say, he cannot bring God into the poem because it is inconceivable. And much of the poem is concerned with trying to make us conceive the inconceivable, trying to say it's not this and it's not that, leaving us to, with a space, an empty space. And behind this there's the phrase about the divine love being caught in, in the form of limitation between unbeing and being, and that's how he conceives of life, a form of limitation between unbeing and being, and the being is the ultimate being. And I think what the poem is concerned about is to rise out of one's ordinary being, one's ordinary self in the world, into the state of being itself,
0: which can only be known by absenting yourself from your ordinary self. Is this, Mark Ford, do you think why he uh, makes such use of paradoxes? For instance, uh, what you do not know is the only thing you know, uh, what you own is what you do not own, and so on. To go forward you must go, to go up you must go down. The way up is the way down, and that sort of thing. Is he using that, would that link in with what David just said?
3: And the way forward is the way back. Yes. It's, it's full of these r- riddles or paradoxes which uh, you can't really make sense of in any particularly direct way. It's way back. We all think that, don't we? I mean we all think if we, we all think we
0: have to pull the past because the past is always got in a sol- solid mm. way. We pull mm. that in in order to go forward. So that's that's it's well put but I don't think it's a it's brilliantly put not a riddle.
3: I think he th- he considers these like aids to spiritual meditation yes. in some ways that they're like exercises which uh, generate in the in the reader a sense of the ineffable the the beyond the things that can't be grasped but uh, it, it, so it's full of these general um uh, these general par- uh, paradoxes which um lead to a sort of yes are, are quite mystical it's also interesting though that all four um uh, titles have quite personal significance for Elliot. Burnt Norton, a place that he visited with Emily Hale, East Coker, where his ancestors came from, and where he was buried. Uh, dry Salvages, these rocks which he'd sail round off the coast of Massachusetts, he sailed round in his youth, where he was a great sailor, and these are very important formative uh, years. When he, uh, and Little Gidding, a chapel near Cambridge, uh, he visited in 1936. Um, is is less directly personal, but he. Makes of Little Gidding a, a, a kind of vision of the ideal um, British church
0: because of the association of the 17th century.
3: Nicholas Farrar yes. founded it in 1626, and King Charles visited in 1646 after the Battle of Naseby. And the, the poem, as Fran was saying, it's a very royalist poem. It's odd; Elliot is still fighting, uh, fighting the civil war, the English Civil War, uh, on, and on the side of Charles the First in this poem. Fran, Fran just to,
1: it's really to pick up the point about the um, paradox there that Mark was making, and I'm thinking about the beginning of East Coker and how that pulls a few... Threads together, in my beginning is my end, and the reversal of the normal expectation of that phrase. Um, and it, it's working on the way forward, being the way back, in that broader sense of in my beginning, my childhood. It's on to Dusty Will Return, of course, but it's also about his ancestry in that poem. As you say, it's about his ancestor setting off to America and him returning to the place from which there was that original departure and that sense of things coming full circle in that poem. But I, I'm interested in East Coker's appeal in that sense, to a public at a particular time. Mark made the point that it sold 12,000 copies. Now for a poetry pamphlet, that's absolutely extraordinary. So what is it about that poem that is speaking to an England on the verge of the Second World War? Really, it's written through the Phony War and about to experience that. And some of those paradoxes offer a way of meditation or of thought for people, which I think is not closed down to a particular spiritual experience, but is about anyone, any individual coming to terms with past and future. Um, for some of those people, in my beginning is my end, they're looking back. To These are people who've lived through one global war, are about to confront another and the idea of endings and beginnings is taking on a resonance beyond simply the the spiritual or the autobiographical. Is that,
0: is that a reference back to Mary Queen of Scots when she said, in, in my end in is my, my, end m- is my, my beginning, beginning, which makes sense because when, when I die I'll begin a new life.
1: Yes, yes. And, and it's got that point about it too, and the whole of East Coker is, is a About that sort of cycle of life and renewal, sometimes pitched very positively in that poem, and then at at other points it becomes very bleak, you know, in that um, rather satirical dark, dark, we will all enter into the dark, and, you know, the Grim Reaper is the great leveller at that point, and everybody's going into the mire. But to go into that darkness is also to find your way towards the light. So, what is very bleak and dark about that poem, which I think speaks to the condition of England at the time, also has a more positive ending in sight.
0: And the chastity plays in here, because the, I'll come for one moment, David, I just want to finish this thought of giving up, so much give up. You give up, you, you go down and <laughs> down, you throw things, this doesn't matter. And he also says daily life doesn't matter, that sort of... Uh, yeah, the poetry doesn't, doesn't matter, is what right. he also
1: says in yeah. there. And it's the, the via negativa, the, the way of giving up everything, you know, the St. John of the Cross, the more you sacrifice, the more you gain. On the other hand, back to the paradoxes again, if you have no worldly ambition, you achieve everything you set out to achieve.
0: David?
2: The the thing that strikes me about East Koker is it does become affirmative, but affirmative in a way that's unexpected and isn't what you would expect from the initial entry into a poetry of ancestry, which seems to suggest ancestors, development, genealogy, looking for where you are now as descended from that. The emphasis of that first passage, it moves through... um, the beginning towards the end, towards the universal end, but the emphasis falls upon dung and death, which is extraordinary in a way, having begun with the, sen- the sense that this is his ancestry, here is a house that's burnt, but houses are renewed also. But it moves towards dung and death, and then, as you say, it moves on to embrace that. The thing, the way forward, is to embrace your end and to make your end ultimate it requires a transformation it is not the expected natural development and fulfillment it's precisely not that it's moving to another plane and this if if I can introduce the question of the quartet as a set of four instruments the way in which the poem works is by using these different voices different instrumentalities of the mind There's, first of all, the lyric voice, which is used for natural experience, for memory and direct experience, the world, one's ordinary self, as one might say. Then there's the philosophic voice, which thinks about that experience, which analyzes it in order to discover its meaning. And then there's the voice which affirms the meaning and tries to integrate that into one's disposition and to affirm the meaning. And the ultimate meaning is always, well, your life is a dying. That's the universal truth, the truth for all people at all time, that living is dying. And that's what he seizes upon, and then tries to transform that. That This is the drive of the point to transform that into an affirmation of moving to the higher reality, which is the reality of consciousness, of not only dying, but of ultimate being. That's the
0: positive thing. Mark, well, can I turn to you? Huh? We get several fascinating passages, I think, throughout quartets, I mean, what, uh, uh, um, about writing, about how writing is hard, how it has to start again. how And he interrupts, you'll have the phrase at your fingertips, and uh, says, well, that was that was, was OK, but it wasn't very good. Uh, he says it rather better than that, frankly, but obviously. Um, um, why can't I write our words? And that's and he's showing his, uh, it's like a Richard Rogers building, isn't it? The inside out is going on.
3: That was a way of putting it, not very satisfactory, but uh, you put it very well, Melvin. I think um, that uh, it's one of the first poems, which is what could be called a meta poem. It's a poem about writing poetry, um, and this becomes very popular in the postmodern era. But Eliot is actually the first person to do it in in a way which... um, makes it spread around the world that this is a poem about the troubles of writing poetry so all his language becomes in some ways provisional it seems to me that he's using examples quite generic examples often children's voices in the garden a bird song um uh, the house falling down they're not particular examples they're quite ordinary ones which illustrate things uh, rather than being um so ra- rather than um Uh, being immediate experience and he worried that there wasn't enough personal immediate experience in it Um, and this kind of prosy, discursive voice which um, is rather uncomplimentary about what he's managed to do um, leaving one still with intolerable wrestle with words and meanings Uh, you'll never get there but there's only the trying and I think that The effort of the poem, the attempts to write, also struck a chord with the British populace who were trying to win the war. So this is an ongoing effort. It can never be achieved in a quick way. But in some ways, the, the going on trying is the point.
1: If I could just, I I mean, I probably want to query slightly the idea that this is the first poem that really embeds within it the idea of the struggle in writing. Um, Perhaps it does so more explicitly in this rather prosy way, which I sometimes find a little clunky, to be honest. I know that might be seen as part of the point, but I'm thinking back to, say, Yeats and the epic struggle of poems in the 20s, such as The Tower or Meditations in Time of Civil War, where there is that consciousness of what his position is as poet in relation to history and how one labours in the process of writing and, and embeds that struggle within the writing. Um, perhaps I sometimes fill with Four Quartets, where he's reflecting on his inadequacies. That was a way of putting it. Not very satisfactory. Um that it it sort of indicates a, a humility that he advocates in the poem, but it doesn't always feel terribly humble. It can sometimes feel, perhaps to me, a little pompous. he no, keeps
3: saying the humility is endless.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, he also
0: thinks the state of humility is the only acceptable state to be in, doesn't he?
3: Yes, I think for the for, to for, to receive grace, you have to be in a state of humility. And you... humility is
2: related to humus and earth. <laughs> the um, the prose, the prosy bits, I think. As, as you implied in an aside, are deliberately prosy and deliberately satiric. When he rejects, when he says that's not very satisfactory, that's because <laughs> that is a form of, of rhetoric and he's imitating a traditional form of rhetoric out of the 17th century, really. And he's saying that's not very satisfactory. That's where putting it, which is not his own simply, but a traditional one, historical one, that's not very satisfactory. The treatment of the faces in the underground, particularly when he gets on to the passages dealing with the underground in each of the three well, not Little Gidding but the first three, there's a touching upon the experience of people in the underground, and he means the underground to connect with the infernal, of course um, their life is apathetic, tumoured apathy, empty of meaning and he's putting that into a form which is a bit clunky, but deliberately it's a deliberate, deliberate lack of interest in it He's not going to give his full mind to that because he wants to hold it off, to reject it, and look for
0: the further experience. Can I ask you, uh, Fran Braden, to talk about the dry salvages? These are rocks... Uh, large rocks, with a, with a groaner, a, a boy bell which groans, it tolls its bell out from, comes from the deep currents, it's very convincing that the, the, he's talking about time there and the deep time that moves this, the deep currents that move this bell to toll and sailing there, and he talks about and we're back to empty landscape pre-Us landscape, the waste the ridiculous waste of it, before and after but so, can you just give us something about the Dry Salvages?
1: It's interesting mentioning waste and the, that very title, Dry Salvages which was, was seen to be um, a look back in a sense to the wasteland, it wasn't understood by the first reader as an actual place and he clarified that in the poem so it's that return to um, much of the imagery actually of the wasteland, um, the river to um, the, the rather kind of but it has that bell tolling beneath it which as he says about memory um and that bell ringing that's that's rung by the waves becomes also the ritual that he's embraced in a new anglican life because it becomes the bell of the angelus ringing out three times a day so it's it's both memory and ritual you know the bells that that summon that actually record moments through time and changes through time i'm thinking of um You know, the way the church bells might ring out for the dead, for instance, you know, that it becomes a way of counting to and measuring time. Um, But also, in the end, for me in this poem, you may have different, something that actually is seen to um, make for one of those timeless moments of a recapturing of the past. I'm perhaps not explaining that very well. Um, Feel free to jump in. The
3: (laughs) the past is very, very early childhood. He's growing up on the Mississippi in St. Louis. and uh, remembering the river with its, as he puts it, cargo of dead Negroes, uh, chicken coops, and uh, the destructiveness of the Mississippi at that time. And the water, this is the water uh, quartet, water is, is the Mississippi River as well as the sea as well, the Atlantic, uh, and as I said, Elliot was a keen sailor, and um, the Atlantic is, or the, the sea is the image of that can destroy everything in one minute. The water is a sort of image of destructiveness. The water in, god, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, that Italy, those who build cities we put bridges over them forget about the river but the river doesn't forget about us
3: I do not know much about gods but, but Eliot does know a great deal about gods which has always made that line seem particularly inauthentic yes. to me
0: David Moody what, is there a sense in which questions raised or is it because you brilliant people are uh, extrapolating this is there a real sense in which the questions raised in the first three poems of this quartet are answered in Little Gidding and if so what are they? I would put it slightly differently, that it's
2: a matter of unfinished business. That as he works through these three patriotic or wartime poems, he's developing his thought. The East Koker is about the death of Earth and its emph- emphasis is upon the death of Earth. Dry Selvedge's emphasis upon the death of water, but also bringing in... Now is explicit- it death of water or death by water? He also says the death of water, right? Death by water, certainly, but the death of water, because he wants to annihilate the elements themselves. But the the transformation here is to bring in explicitly religious terms, annunciation and incarnation, so that that death becomes an annunciation of a different kind of ending, the ultimate end. Now he has moved towards explicit affirmation of the meaning but he hasn't yet incorporated it into a way of life. And this is what he wants to do in Little Gidding, to develop a sense of community, a religious community, and he moves moves in Little Gidding towards that affirmation of a society of basically Christians who, because of their common belief and common practice, their common action, will be united in the divine will. So it's, it's a wishing
0: to create or to speak to and to speak for a society. Frank Braden. coming back to something which was raised earlier in the programme, mm-hmm. is, there, is there a sense in which, um, for some readers, and for many non-readers as it were, Eliot's intense religion and the mysticism, we haven't really talked about the mysticism yet, of Julian of Norwich, and that, mm-hmm. is a problem, it's a barrier even, it,
1: Um, I think it can be. That debate began early and it began in 1942 in Poetry London where Orwell came in and said, I prefer the early poems of glowing despair to the later ones of melancholy faith because he didn't like to see that Christian agenda, if you like, driving the poem. But I I think we also have to differentiate between how a readership responded to it and saw it and read it in those terms of a, a... a Christian or Anglican message, and whether the poem may be about many other things and may be read in many different ways. Um, there is a, I think, for some people. A sense that the four quartets Eliot is different from. He may have alienated some of the readers of The Wasteland who read The Wasteland very differently in terms of disillusionment too. I mean, Ted Hughes in the early 80s said in one of his letters that if a poet moves into faith in that sense, perhaps they can bring the poetry with them and that Eliot is one of the people who did that successfully. But in doing so, they may well lose the first readership. Or they may abandon the poetry altogether as actually no longer necessary now that the religious life has actually taken its place. And to some extent, you know, this is also Eliot's swan song as a poet. You know, there's nothing else really of of significance for the remaining 20 years of his Writing life
0: and it's deliberately meditative and rehearsing something, then going back to it again. Not only does not he doesn't have to say did I get it right? He does it again, the beginning and end, end and in the beginning, all, all the present, all the riches of the present, and so on. So we have this. We haven't talked about an element that I think everybody thinks so. it's important. It's just to do with mysticism, uh, Mark. What do you think, Mark Vaughan?
3: Uh, I think I think the poem makes sense as the work of a mystic I mean it's incredibly beautifully patterned exquisitely very very carefully patterned and the intricacy of the patterning is in order to release these timeless moments uh, as he calls them uh, in which he glimpses the divine and these glimpses of the divine are what give meaning to Eliot's life in a sense that he will possibly be uh, redeemed Uh, and I think the problem that Fran was raising was that to many people the horrors of the 20th century didn't couldn't be answered by high anglicanism stalinism nazism high anglicanism didn't seem a particularly um telling solution to the atrocities which um the poem was responding to um and uh, many people doubted the the use of eliot's faith i think um Pound, where Eliot said to Pound, I'm going to go to hell, and Pound said, I just don't get it, I don't (laughs) get it, Uh, that you're worried about that when, you know, the world is going to hell in a handcart, so to speak. So that Eliot's solution seemed a very kind of narrow and tribal one uh, in relation to the problems that the poem was diagnosing.
0: How persuaded are you, David Moody? Um, uh, At the close of the four quartets, he uses the phrase, all shall be well. He wrote before the dropping of the atom bomb. It might—I don't know. why I thought of that, but there you are. And we're talking about <laughs> destruction and that. And soon after it finished the quartets, the bomb dropped. It connects with what? With Mark, the Latin, "All shall be well." Mm.
2: Yes, it con- <laughs> connects with, with what Mark was just saying. What 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 Pound said: "This love of death that was in them, I do not understand it. This love of death, and that's a way of thinking that Eliot is talking. So that, given that there is." A, apparently a love of death, apparently, I say, um, then the dropping of the atom bomb would, uh, would not disturb him. That would be part of the pattern of things. They, all right, an absolute of killing. But is the end reassuring, you ask? That depends upon whether you followed him in his faith. If you have followed him in his faith, then, yes, I think it will be reassuring. If you have not, then it is problematic. If you really understand a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. I'm not sure what not less than everything is, but it's certainly an absolute.
0: Brian?
1: I wonder the phrase you quote, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, is of course the phrase from Julian of Norwich and from the Revelations of Divine Love. And that is a genuine mystical text. I think Eliot's is not in the same way and isn't purporting to be either. But her message in the Revelations is rather more... Positive, actually, in its emphasis on love, than the way Eliot employs her at the end of Four Quartets.
2: I think Eliot isn't in- including love, but this is a love which consumes. The divine love is a purgatorial fire which refines, and the end is of the refining fire. But a, very briefly,
3: there's a lot of personal suffering which goes into the creation of that fire in the rose. The excruciation which kind of Eliot charts for us. Uh, is, if not masochistic, it's pretty painful.
0: Right. Wow.
3: Excruciation
2: is is a good word because it's almost close to crucify, which connects with
0: the incarnation and the death of Christ. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, David Moody, Fran Brayton and Mark Ford. Next week we'll be discussing the German astronomer Johannes Kepler, who is widely regarded as one of the greatest scientists of all time. Thank you very much for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: Hey, did we miss out anything that we should, that I should have got in? What do you think, Fran?
1: I'd have liked perhaps to have a chance to talk a little bit about the way this poem negotiates with Yeats. And Yeats's death in 1939 is something that, in a way, clears the way for Eliot to be the grand old man of poetry, Yeats is gone, Kipling is gone in 1936, both 20 odd years older than him and I was conscious, reading through four quartets again, which I was doing really after many years working more on Yeats um, how much he is looking back to that, how much he's revising Yeats, so the beginning of East Cocoa with its houses fall and built again um, is is almost a direct echo from Yeats, that idea of decay and destruction and reconstruction, but Yeats of course is the one who um, builds the tower and holds it intact while Eliot is writing about his falling towers. And I think the the Dantesque ghost who appears to rebuke him as a slightly Yeatsian figure in some ways too. Um, but he's rewriting what Yeats stood for, well, the the frenzy and folly and wisdom. Eliot's ideas of that are actually very different from Yeats's. So, I mean, as Auden said about Yeats, the words of dead man are modified in the guts of the living. And I think in this poem you see Eliot modifying Yeatsian words in his own image rather than in the way Yeats would have employed them.
2: Yes, Eliot said about Yeats uh, and his rage against old age, if he'd had a belief that Eliot had, the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Catholic belief, uh, he would have had something more sensible
1: to rage against. <laughs> <laughs> well, conversely, Yates, of course, said that he didn't believe really Eliot's lack of self-surrender in relation to his God as something... Lack that of he identified. what? Lack of self-surrender. Aye. That yeah. he didn't give himself in the way that Anglo-Catholicism or Catholicism required. Um, that was his criticism. Also, that he'd simply described men and women getting into and ad- out of bed out of mere habit. Okay. But he wasn't an admirer, I recognise yeah, that. So there's a,
2: a nice dialogue between them mm-hmm. i'd l- i'd like to touch on the relation with dante and also st john of the cross in his modifying them the lyric in east Coker, the wounded surgeon plies the steel is based upon the poem by john of the cross which is the basis of his dark night of the soul which eliot invokes it's five stanzas five lines five stanzas of five lines which is exactly the form of Saint John of the Cross's poem and it is following it in this case with agreement. In the case of the sestina which begins part 2 of The Dry Salvages, it's Dante's sestina, Pocciglione, which he is imitating but changing. The sestina works through a series of changes of the same rhymes Eliot fixes those stang- those rhymes so that rep- the same pattern of rhyme is repeated in a- each. Mm-hmm. So the stina here is not a progression, but a repetition and fixing. Uh, so he's following Dante. Of course, the whole poem, as has been said, mm-hmm. is following Dante very closely and w- ends up that ch- crowned not of fire is an image out of the Purgatorio of Arno Daniel. But he's following Dante's form while at the same time adapting it.
3: And so on the subject of sources, I tend to see this poem as very, uh, as placing Eliot clearly in the New England Puritan tradition. That this is uh, Eliot almost in his pulpit um, uh, and um, explaining to the um, congregation how they're going to be redeemed and offering a kind of spiritual paradigm for the uh, progress that they might make towards a kind of a vita nuova. So that although he borrowed from Europe, all the the terms and the allusions often I I find there's lots of the of the 17th century New England um, uh, preacher in Eliot, and although he does it in a very kind of subtle and insinuating and seductive way what he says is fairly uncompromising in relation to his vision of last things
1: I wonder if that's um, part of... There's a great deal of talk in this poem about what goes into it, what sources go into it, what influences are there. There's perhaps less critical discussion about where it goes, and that interests me too in terms of what is the legacy of Four Quartets in post-1945 poetry and it's there and it's a very problematical one. So you can see it at work in Auden's The Sea and the Mirror but not necessarily to the best effect. Um, You can see it in some of Geoffrey Hill's work as well and things like The Triumph of Love so it does have an afterlife too but it doesn't have an afterlife in the way that The Wasteland had an afterlife and there's something about it that seems to have ended with it as much as it's um. But
3: And the prosiness and the self-consciousness and the meditiveness it goes into strands of American poetry quite. A, a poet like John Ashbery, for instance, develops mm. that kind of discursive voice over lots and lots of long poems. So there's a ways in which, uh, although I take your point that, that, that Yeats, Yeats's self-consciousness is of a different kind from Eliot's, mm. but, but kind of models it earlier, but Eliot's sort of chattiness becomes a kind of part of the chattiness of a poet like John Ashbery.
2: Yeah. But, but he, what Eliot has done is invented a form which is a new form, but he's also exhausted it. Because unless you want to say the sort of thing that he's saying, right, the kind of metaphysical poem that he's writing, you don't have a use for this particular form. The elements of it that you, that you mentioned, like the prosiness or the rest of it, you can take out mm-hmm. elements of it, but the total form that closely organised quartet form which is following a kind of sonata form closest to a Bartok sonata, um, that is not imitable, except for the same purpose.
3: Even by yeah. Eliot himself. I mean, he, mm-hmm. this is, yeah. he had 22 years to write and he didn't write any more poetry of significance, so he, he, did, he did feel, when he finished Little Gidding, that he had come to the end of his, uh, of his poetic journey.
0: Well, I think the producer's bursting to get in with the announcement of the morning.
1: Four coffees or four teas? Well, four quartets. And for more podcasts on arts and ideas from the BBC, follow the link on our website to the best of BBC Radio 3's Free Thinking programme.